the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through 1 Samuel. becomes a very tormented man, literally tormented. We're going to see as we get further into his life story that he's literally tormented by demons. And the only relief he gets is when David plays worship music. And so it's unfortunate, but it is a reminder to us to finish well. Because Saul had it backwards. He began well, but he didn't finish well. You know what God cares about? God does not care so much about how well you start, it's how well you finish. If you're a Christian, you should see growth in your relationship with God. There might be times where the progress is faster or slower. The important thing is to not forget when times are good or to turn away from Him when times are bad. As Pastor Gary tells you about King Saul today, you'll be reminded to make sure you finish your race well. Your last day here should be the closest you ever got to God here on earth. He has such great reward for you when you serve Him and keep Him first in your life. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 11 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. 1 Samuel chapter 11 is where we are. We left off in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 10. I'm going to uh, give a little bit of a recap uh, where we are. So again, for those of you who are unfamiliar with our study or who need to be reminded where we are, this is a bleak period in Israel's history. They are transitioning from a theocracy where God is supreme as their king, and they're moving to a form of government that is basically a monarchy where they have an earthly king. They have opted for an earthly king instead of the sovereign king of the universe. And these are the four things that led to this shift from a theocracy to a monarchy. Number one, they had become disappointed with spiritual leadership. Number two, they had become dissatisfied with being different, that is different from the other nations, the pagan nations around them. Number three, they had become distant from God. And number four, they had become distracted by worldly influences. And so all of these things culminated in their desire to have an earthly king. They looked at the pagan nations around them and they thought that that was a better way to be governed than to be directly governed by God or through the prophets that God had raised up or the judges that God had raised up to lead them. And um, again, this was basically motivated from their desire to be like the people around them. It's a very terrible desire that even we as Christians today can sometimes struggle with. And how many of you understand that it's okay to be different, right? Like we are to be separate. We are to be called 
according to God's purposes. And holiness, by definition, means we are separated. We are called to be like our Lord. And so that means at times we're going to be very different from the culture and the world around us. That said, we can't separate ourselves in the sense that we no longer have impact or influence. We are only to separate ourselves in terms of the way that the culture thinks, the way the culture operates, the way the culture believes, and the philosophies of this world. And we are to live like the Lord without completely disengaging from the very people that we are trying to influence for the Lord. And so the Israelites are guilty of this. They're like, you know, we don't really want to live under God's standards. Um, You know, the law is pretty heavy. We like to live kind of free and fancy like the cultures around us, and they have earthly kings, and that's what we want. And so the, the Israelites ended up adopting this monarchy instead of a theocracy, and God gave them what they wanted. And it isn't because God bent to their evil wishes. It's just that how many of you realize that sometimes God will give us what we want in order to show us that what we really need is him. And sometimes through the struggles of getting what we want, it'll be in those times that we really see our desperate need for the Lord. And so God, not in a moment of weakness, but in a moment of teaching them You really want to be like the pagan nations around you? You really want a king like they have? Fine, I'll let you have a king, and then we'll see how well it goes for you. And so God says to Samuel the prophet, who is the last of the judges of Israel, for 500 years they had been under God's theocracy through a judge, God says to Samuel, go ahead and anoint a king. Give them what they want, and they'll begin to see how well it goes for them. And so God tells Samuel, They have not rejected you as the prophet. They have rejected me as king. So I want you to go ahead and anoint an earthly king. And so Samuel anoints the man that God chose for this hour. And God chose the man Saul. His name in Hebrew is Shaul. Uh, Shaul uh, translates asked or prayed for. And uh, so uh, Saul is going to serve as the first king of Israel. And just real briefly, where we left off last time, We read in chapter 8, 9, and 10 leading up to Saul's coronation that Saul was characterized by a few different things in the Bible. Number one, it says that he was tall. In fact, it says he was a head taller than anyone else. Now, as I mentioned at the time, the average height, according to archaeologists who have recovered skeletal remains, the average height of a man back in that day was somewhere between 5'4 and 5'6. So it wasn't that he's probably 7'5. You know, he's, he might have simply been 6 feet, and but in that day, that would have been like a head taller than the common the average height of a man in the day. But nevertheless, it mentions that because he stands out literally head and shoulders above anybody else. And it also says that he was handsome, and it says specifically, more handsome than anyone else. It is kind of uncanny how God chooses tall and good-looking people to serve him. I've never really... Anyway, maybe he skipped over me. But it also says in the passage that he was from a wealthy, influential family. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. And this part is commendable, although he starts out this way, but he doesn't finish this way. He was a reluctant leader. He really didn't want the job. And um, people who often, you know, want the job often run into roadblocks. You know, case in point, what's happening right now. But this is the kind of guy Saul was. He's like, I don't really want to do this. 
Is there anybody else? It is interesting in the Bible when you look at people like Moses and Gideon and Saul and other people like them, that the people God often uses are the reluctant people. And for good reason, because people who are so full of themselves that they think they're going to help God out will often steal the glory from God. And so God will often do extraordinary things through ordinary people. So don't ever discount yourself. If you think, I'm just this or I'm just that, whatever that label might be, you could exactly be the person God is looking for. Because often he will do his extraordinary work through ordinary people. Because why? Then he gets more of the glory. And that's what it's all about, giving God the glory, making sure that he receives all the glory. And so Saul was this reluctant leader. He's like, okay, you know. And in fact, when Samuel goes to announce him to the people, he's hiding. He's hiding literally among the baggage, it says at the end of chapter 10. He's just hiding like in this fetal position, hoping nobody will see him when Samuel calls him out to be introduced among the people. And that's this guy. Unfortunately, he doesn't end as well as he began. He will end up becoming very full of himself, very paranoid. He will resort to trying to eliminate people that he thinks are a threat to his reign as king of Israel, including, and not limited to, his own son, Jonathan. He'll try to kill his own son, Jonathan. He'll try to kill David when the people find David to be more popular than Saul. He becomes a very tormented man, literally tormented. We're going to see as we get further into his life story that he's literally tormented by demons. And the only relief he gets is when David plays worship music. And so it's unfortunate, but it is a reminder to us to finish well. Because Saul had it backwards. He began well, but he didn't finish well. You know what God cares about? God does not care so much about how well you start. It's how well you finish. There's a lot of us who have, you know, stories that aren't good stories about the beginning of our lives. And when we first come into relationship with Jesus, you know, a lot of our lives are pretty colorful. And that's not what God is concerned about because Jesus died for our colorful pasts, right? What he wants is us to finish well. And Saul was just the opposite. He starts well, but he finishes poorly. But this is the guy that for the moment, for the hour that God has chosen. Now, not everybody likes this guy. At the end of chapter 10, let me read so that we can kind of get a running start into chapter 11. But at the end of chapter 10, verse 25, it says, Then Samuel explained to the people the behavior of royalty. So like Samuel is trying to explain to everybody, here's what a king is supposed to look like. Here's how he's supposed to behave. And he wrote it in a book and he laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. And Saul also went home to Gibeah, and valiant men went with him whose hearts God had touched. But some rebels said, how can this man save us? And so they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. In other words, you know that old saying, like, you know, hold your tongue. Like, that's what it means. Hold, hold your peace. Like, you know, don't try to make matters worse by stuff you might say or do. So Saul was liked by most, but not by all, which is common. You know, not everybody's going to like you. There's going to be some people who like you and are loyal to you and other people who don't like you at all. Okay, you know, the most important thing is, are you pleasing the Lord? That's the only audience we really have to always be focused on pleasing. Now, the ones who rebelled against him, they didn't like him, they despised him, We're going to see, I think it's in this chapter, it might be chapter 11, that 
those guys are going to come back into play here, and Saul's going to actually spare their lives. So let's jump into chapter 11, where it says this, Then Nahash, Nahash, the Ammonite, came up and encamped against Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. Okay, pause for a moment. In my Bible, this chapter is entitled, Saul Saves Jabesh-Gilead. I think really the title should be Saul's leadership gets tested. And here's what happens. Nahash, who is a king of the Ammonites, is going to come against the, the people of Jabesh Gilead and he's basically going to threaten them with war. Now, the Ammonites lived on the eastern side of the Jordan River. If you looked at a map today, it would be in the country of Jordan. And Nahash is coming against the people of Jabesh Gilead. Now, Jabesh Gilead is also on the eastern side of the Jordan River. If you remember when God allotted the land to the 12 tribes of Israel, two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh, asked if they could live on the eastern side of the Jordan River, which again today is modern Jordan. And they were given permission to do that. So Jabesh Gilead is located on the eastern side of the Jordan River, halfway between the Sea of Galilee in the north and the Dead Sea in the south. They're like right in the middle. But because they're on the eastern side of the Jordan River, they're separated from the other nine and a half tribes who will come to your defense if some foreign king comes against you. Well, you got a, you got a river that's dividing, you know, the 12 tribes of Israel here, nine and a half and two and a half. My math's not good. I'm just a pastor. And so um, the king of Ammon is on that eastern side. So Jabesh Gilead, those people are vulnerable because they're on the eastern side where Ammon is, the nation of Ammon. So here comes Nahash. Now keep this in mind. Nahash in Hebrew means serpent, serpent. There's going to be a few parallels that I draw here from chapter 11 with you, so keep that in mind, because here comes the enemy, here comes the serpent, right? And he comes to the men of Jabesh Gilead, and the men say to him, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. They're weak from day one. They basically say, let's enter a treaty with you so that you don't kill us. Can we have a treaty? That's what they mean here by covenant. And here comes this strange treaty. Look at verse 2. And the Hash, the Ammonite, answered them, On this condition I will make a covenant with you, that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. Okay? It's like, I don't want to poke out both your eyes, just your right eye. Now, why the right eye? Because a lot of times in warfare, using arrows, if you're drawing an arrow depending on if you're left-handed or right-handed, you're going to focus on one eye or the other. But the predominant eye is going to be the right eye. And so we're going to eliminate the possibility that you might ever come against us in warfare. We'll poke out your right eye, and then we'll let you live. Okay? Now, what's even worse than that suggestion is that they say in verse 3, then the elders of Jabesh said to him, hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel, like on the other side of the Jordan River, and then, if there's no one to save us, we will come out to you. Like, you go ahead and cut out our right eye. This is a bizarre treaty here. But, you know, desperate people do things when they're in desperate situations, which is often bad. Like, when we're in desperate situations, we often resort to desperate things that we shouldn't. And here's one principle 
drawn from this scene here, for those of you taking notes. Okay, we're just three principles from chapter 11. If we get into chapter 12, I've got another one in chapter 12. But here's the first one. The enemy actively works to take away your ability to see things clearly. It's called deception. The enemy works actively to take away our ability to see things clearly. We have to really be on our guard because the enemy is always trying to blind us just a little bit, not entirely, just to deceive us enough. And so we have to be vigilant about this. This picture here of Nahash, the serpent, the enemy, is coming against the people, saying to them, it'll go well with you if you just allow me to poke out your right eye. And they actually entertain the idea. Now, why Nahash agrees to let them have a week to try to find out if people will come to their aid, that's also a mystery. But read on with me, verse 4. So the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, what troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. So again, the guys on Jabesh Gilead, they're on the eastern side of the Jordan River. They send a messenger over to the western side to appeal to their brothers. And there Saul is, you know, working. He's in the fields. He's with the herds. And he comes to hear, why is everybody crying? They tell him what's going on. And it says, then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news and his anger was greatly aroused. Here's principle number two. Righteous anger is a necessary response to the enemy's evil tactics. We got to get bold about this. When the enemy works hard, we have to pray even harder. And it's okay to be angry. You're not angry at a person. You're angry at the enemy, at Satan, who is trying to rip people off constantly. So when you see things happening in your family, when you see things happening in your nation, when you see things happening at work, when you see things happening in the schools, it's okay to be angry about that, to have this righteous indignation, not to resort to something, you know, foolish or violent, but to at least be stirred up in your spirit with this righteous indignation enough that you're not just going to sit this out. This needs your involvement. You need to be engaged. And if nothing else, you need to be on your knees before God and praying and praying until you're all prayed out. Because as relentless as the enemy is going to be, we need to be just as relentless. Be as relentless. And so Saul's angry here, and for good reason. He's like, I'm not going to let the enemy come against our brothers like this. We're not going to stand by and watch our brothers and our sisters get slaughtered by the enemy. No. And so it says in verse 7, So he took a yoke of men, of oxen, he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel, by the hands of messengers, saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. So, like, they're in unity here. They're like, yes, we got to do this. 
we got to fight for our brothers and our sisters. And verse 8, when he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel, listen to this, were 300,000, and the men of Judah, the southern territory, was 30,000. So check this out. 330,000 fighting men came out. It's like, we are not going to be silent here. Our brothers and our sisters are going to be injured and harmed by the enemy. And so we're going to fight. And they come out 330,000 strong, verse 9, and they said to the messengers who came, thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, like in the afternoon, you shall have help. And then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad, I bet they were. We're going to keep our right eyes. And therefore, verse 19, the men of Jabesh-Gilead said, and it's implied said to Nahash of the Ammonites, tomorrow we will come out to you And you may do with us whatever seems good to you. Okay, So they're buying some time because the messenger said the 330,000 are going to get there tomorrow. So the Jabesh Gilead guys go out to Nahash and say, okay, we'll come out. We'll come out tomorrow. We'll come out tomorrow. So they're buying a little time here. Verse 11, so it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp. In the morning watch, now the morning watch is about 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., so they're still under the cover of darkness. Here comes Saul and the army of Israel, and they killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. So here they come, early morning hours, until the heat of the day, until the afternoon, and it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. No two Ammonites were left together. And then the people said to Samuel, who is he who said, shall Saul reign over us? Okay, remember the rebellious guys at the end of chapter 10? So now because Saul has given this, you know, great demonstration of his leadership, led them in this victory over the Ammonites, now everybody's like, who are those guys back in chapter 10 who didn't like him being king? Let's bring them out. Let's bring them out. Why do they want to bring them out? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, now notice, this is another mark of his leadership here. Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Notice how he gives praise to God. He says, I didn't do this. God did this. So again, he starts out very humble here. And it says in verse 14, And then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. Circle Gilgal, talk about it in a minute. And so all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Now, notice this with me. They have this great victory. Saul wants to make sure the people understand. This is really the victory that God has provided. And so Samuel the prophet, who had anointed Saul back in chapter 10, verse 1, first part of chapter 10, Saul's already been anointed. I mean, literally, like anointed. Samuel the prophet took oil in a flask and poured it over Saul's head, which up until that point had only been done for priests. When priests were called by God to serve God in the temple, and they were separated for the duty of being priests, they were anointed with oil. And oil in the Bible, no doubt it was olive oil, oil in the Bible is uh, shemen in Hebrew. 
Oil in the Bible is symbolic of the presence of God, often symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And so even though there wasn't anything magical in the oil itself, it was poured out on the heads of priests and now the first king of Israel to mark them as belonging to God, that they shall now be filled with the very presence of God. Thanks for listening to Cornerstone Connection. You've been listening to a message from the book of 1 Samuel. This book is packed full of practical applications for our lives today. We follow three main characters, Saul, David, and of course Samuel, through a series of crossroads and decisions they faced during the early days in Bible times. It is here that we find the victory of David over Goliath and the development of a new prophet in young Samuel. We also find the fall of the king in Saul as a reminder of the consequences of disobedience to God. As Samuel told Saul in chapter 15, verse 22, to obey is better than to sacrifice. Did you know that getting together as a church family is one way that you can hear the truth from one another? Cornerstone Chapel gets together each Sunday at 8.30, 10, and 11.45 a.m., and Wednesday at 7 p.m. to learn from the Word and spend time in fellowship as sons and daughters of the King. Find out more at cornerstoneconnection.cc. We also encourage and believe in the power of praying together and for one another. Email us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net with your prayer needs today. Thanks for listening to this teaching from 1 Samuel today on Cornerstone Connection. Got no place to go, but still you know, but still you know you're not alone. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.